first reading is from Luke chapter 22, verse 63 to Luke 23, verse 12. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. The second reading is from Luke 23, verses 13 to 35. It's in the uh, order of service if you want to follow it. I'm not sure of the number in the Pew Bible. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? 
I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Continuing to read from Luke's Gospel. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for what we are getting and our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph, 
a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. A few years ago, a friend of mine sent me a link to a, uh, an online article in a newspaper. It was the story of the execution of this man. His name was Nicholas Ingram. Uh, the execution took place in a prison in Georgia in the United States. Nothing really unusual about that. Close to 100 people were put to death the same year. But this story attracted a lot of attention because he was in fact a British citizen uh, living in the United States. And uh, because of that, it received a lot of media coverage. But the link that was sent to me was a British journalist who was covering the execution. And it made for quite chilling reading. It was intriguing to see the things that stood out to the journalist. He was there at the prison in Georgia when the execution took place. And it was amazing to see the things that, that he noticed as he looked around the prison. He wrote about Ingram's anger as he entered to be executed, that he was hurling insults at everybody and in fact spitting at people as he came in. He commented about the lack of emotion from the guards who were supervising the execution. And the writer was also struck by Ingram's lawyer who was sobbing at the press conference afterwards. They were the things that stood out to him, the things that struck him as he watched this event unfold. Well, we've heard the account of the crucifixion of Jesus read to us this morning. And Luke, the writer of this, a great historian, has collected the information from eyewitnesses, those who were there and saw these events take place. And Luke has put together this account of the death of Jesus, and there are things that clearly stand out to him and to the eyewitnesses. The things that seem to have struck Luke are the insults, the innocence, And the irony. I mean, first of all, there's the insults. From the moment that Jesus is arrested to the time that he is finally put to death on the cross, everybody seems to be insulting him. He's insulted by the guards while they're holding him prisoner. Uh, You can see that in in, in the very opening verses. Chapter, uh, it's not on your passage, just the verses just prior to the passage you have in front of you. It says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. He was insulted by those who stood at the cross to watch him die. Chapter 23, verse 35, we read this. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. And it seems unbelievable, but even 
one of the people dying on the cross beside Jesus is throwing insults at Jesus. One of the criminals, Luke says, who hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. One of the remarkable things in reading the account of Nicholas Ingram's execution is that he was the one hurling the insults. Everybody else was quiet. In fact, the writer says that everyone else was almost emotionless as they're going through this process of executing this man. No insults from the guards. No insults from the witnesses there to watch. The insults were coming from Ingram himself. But as Jesus moved closer towards his death, it's everybody around him who's heaping insults on him. I mean, it's bad enough that he's going to the cross. But it seems that people are so abusive. The next thing that uh, that Luke notices for us is the innocence of Jesus. I think it would be fair to say that we all hate injustice. It really doesn't matter where we see it. We don't like injustice on a sporting field. We don't like injustice in a court case. We want people to be treated fairly. If they've done the wrong thing, we're happy for them to be punished. But we don't want to see people who are innocent suffering for something that they didn't do. And Luke notices that as well. All the way through this account, the thing that stands out is that there is a grave injustice taking place here. Jesus is not guilty of the things that he has been accused of. He's taken to the governing authority to Pontius Pilate and Pilate's verdict in the case is very clear. He says this, Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And he didn't just say it once, he said it three times to everybody and the crowd. Chapter 23, verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who has been inciting rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for a charge against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. And then down in verse 22, it says, For a third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. I think Pilate's trying to come up with a compromise. He says he'll have him whipped and then we'll let him go. But we're not putting him to death. But the religious leaders object. They want Jesus dead. It's not just Pilate who sees that he's innocent. The other criminal who hung beside Jesus on the cross recognised that he was innocent. When the first criminal's hurling the insults at him, this is what happens. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are, you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And even one of the soldiers who was there to crucify Jesus recognises his innocence. After Jesus' death, it reads, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. So why does Luke want to stress that point? Why does it keep coming back to the fact that Jesus is innocent? Does he just want us to be outraged by the injustice? 
Well, no, that's not it at all. Luke stresses the innocence of Jesus because Jesus needed to be an innocent man. The death of Jesus on the cross is not just a story about injustice. Jesus had been telling his disciples for some time that he was going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. He knew that it would happen. He knew that his death, the death of a perfectly innocent man, would be the sacrifice for the sins of many. He knew that his death, the death of the innocent son of God, would pay the price for the sins of this world. Jesus' death was not some meaningless mistake. There was a purpose behind his death. He took the punishment for the sins of this world. He was willing to endure the pain and the suffering so that you and I could be forgiven. Here's a couple of verses that sum up what that Easter message is about, that death of Jesus on the cross. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only righteous one in the story is the one who pays the penalty, bears the cost of our unrighteousness, so that we might be declared righteous by God. There's also the ironies in the story. The only truly innocent man in the whole account is the one who gets put to death. The crowd are calling out for the guilty man, Barabbas, to be set free. And they're calling for the innocent man, Jesus, to be put to death. There are other ironies as well. Only a few days before Jesus dies on the cross, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey And the people are cheering at his arrival. They're proclaiming him the new king. But now they're calling for his crucifixion. One day proclaiming him king. And the next day pleading with the Roman authorities to have him put to death. But the greatest irony comes from the taunts of the religious leaders. And those who are hanging on the cross with him. The people stood watching it says... And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. But do you see the irony there? They mock him and says he saves others, but he can't save himself. They're taunting Jesus to just save himself in this circumstance. But what they can't see is that he's dying to save others. He's dying so that anyone who places their trust in Jesus can be saved. He wasn't going to come down to save himself, though he could have at any time, I imagine. He was going to endure this suffering so that others could be saved. So that the world could be saved. The insults, the innocence and the irony. They're the things that struck Luke as he put together this account of the crucifixion of Jesus. But this isn't isn't simply a story about man's inhumanity to man. 
It's not simply a story about injustice. That's not why Luke is telling us all of these things. It's a story about forgiveness. It's a story about the greatest need in our world, the need to be forgiven by God, to be reconciled to God. And it's a story about what God has done to meet our need. When Jesus was arrested and put on trial, he knew what he was doing. It was planned. It wasn't planned by the religious leaders. It wasn't planned by the Roman authorities. It was planned by God. That best-known verse in the whole Bible is the one that really sums it up, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's purpose was that Jesus would come into this world to pay the price for our sin. Jesus knew that his death on the cross would achieve God's purpose. He knew that his death on the cross would pay that penalty for sin. He knew that his death on the the cross would make it possible for us to be forgiven. A few years ago, I was standing at an ATM just before Easter with a friend of mine. And it was one of those ATMs with a screen. And while you're waiting for your transaction to be processed, they actually put up some announcements, public service announcements in this particular instance. So while we were standing there waiting for the thing to tick over and spit the money out, uh, an announcement came up. It was a Red Cross ad, and I don't know whether you saw this when they had this campaign. It just said on the screen, it had the Red Cross logo, and it said, Save lives this Easter, give blood. Now, I don't know whether they were just trying to tap into the whole Easter idea or whether or not they just kind of inadvertently stumbled across what Easter is really all about. But that's the message of Easter, isn't it? Blood being given to save lives. It's about Jesus' blood being given so that our lives could be saved. In some ways, the message of Easter is a fairly confronting message, isn't it? Because you actually have to recognise that you need forgiveness. That you're not right with God by yourself, by your efforts. That you need God to do something for you. But it's a wonderful message, isn't it? Because all that can be done to make us right with God has been done by Jesus. And God calls us to trust what Jesus has done, to put our faith in him, to believe in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.